Hi, it's Dr. Robert Seichert. Welcome to a new episode of the Dr. Podcast Show. This is episode number 18. Today, we're going to be discussing a very important topic that's been in the news a lot in the last few years. Uh, it's transgender medicine and transgender surgery. And I'm pleased to have three of the world's leading experts today to discuss uh, this topic. We have Dr. Marcy Bowers, who's appearing uh, via Zoom all the way from California, where she is uh, practices uh, medicine and surgery there. Dr. Bowers was trained as a gynecologist, but is now one of the world's uh, leading transgender uh, surgeons. Uh, and Dr. Uh, Bowers has a unique perspective of this because she herself transitioned from male to female several decades ago. So she's one of the few transgender uh, females who actually does the surgery. Uh, also with us today in, in alphabetical order is Dr. Miroslav uh, Georgievic, who practices here in New York City at the Mount Sinai Medical Center mm -hmm. and also practices at the uh, University of Belgrade in Serbia in Europe. And Dr. Uh, Georgievic has also done thousands of transgender surgeries and is one of the world's leading experts on this. Uh, we also have with us Dr. John Stever, who's trained as a pediatrician and an adolescent medicine specialist, and his practice is focusing on treating adolescents who are interested in transitioning. Uh, he treats with various hormones and puberty blockers, and he will also be giving us uh, lots of information about that. Thank you, everybody, uh, for coming today. I'm going to start with uh, Dr. Bauer and Dr. Georgievic, uh, Dr. Bauer, if you could just introduce yourself and give us some uh, background about why you decided to specialize in transgender surgery. Uh, thank you, Robert, for having me. Uh, uh, my name is Martha Phelps, and uh, I'm introduced. Uh, I also have a faculty appointment at Massachusetts in New York, where we began the nation's first uh, comprehensive transgender surgical program. So I, that's a very uh, important program that was uh, developed in 2016. Uh, Jess Ting uh, was co-founder and we're very proud of that program. Uh, I entered the field because uh, at the in the early 2000s, there were very few other surgeons uh, working in this area of medicine. Uh, I recognize the, the, the growing need from the community and uh, also realize that this is a phenomenon that has been here since the uh, since the ancient days of antiquity and uh, that this was a, uh, a medical need whose time had finally come. How about uh, you, Dr. Georgievic? How did you get interested in transgender surgery and what's your background in that? Thank you again for your invitation. Um, I started uh, almost 30 years ago with this program. Uh, it was a luck uh, that um, I started to work with my mentor, Professor Perovic, at the early 90s, and he was a pioneer of this type of surgery in Europe. So we developed our center in the Belgrade and started to develop new surgical techniques and to introduce um, new possibilities for our transgender population. And I'm continued to do on the same way until now. All right. And Dr. Stever, could you explain to us what gender dysphoria is? We hear that a lot about that. Can you define that and explain it? Um, well, gender, gender dysphoria is basically the state where a person is upset or anxious or uh, feeling bad about themselves um, but a, a state of anxiety and, and dislike of themselves due to the disconnect between how they perceive their gender and how society views their gender. So uh, in sort of simplistic terms, when uh, a boy feels trapped in a woman's body or vice versa. I see. All right. And why do you think that happens? What, what, what causes gender dysphoria? Well, I don't think we really know exactly why some people um, do not identify in their head um, with the gender that they are assigned to at birth. Um, the, I, you know, spheres of 
possibility, um, gender expression, gender orientation, sexual orientation, sexual behavior. Those are all independent variables that come together and make up who we are as sort of sexual beings in the very broad sense of the term. And so we really don't understand why some people identify as male, some people identify as female. Usually, statistically speaking, a baby that's born with, say, a penis uh, is assigned male, identifies as male, and usually grows up to be heterosexual, attracted to women. Um, but because all those variables are independent, you can have a lot of different variety of that. Uh, and that's just normal diversity within the natural world. I see. All right. Uh, Dr. Barris, can you tell us what type of transgender surgeries you do? Do you operate on both males and females, and, and what do you do? We operate on both trans feminine and trans masculine individuals doing, uh, performing uh, uh, genital confirmation. So in the, in the, uh, in the, in the female or trans feminine person, uh, we uh, perform vaginoplasty, which is creation of a, of a neo-vagina from the existing male anatomy. And conversely, for the transmasculine individual, we perform a, a genital confirmation surgery that would consist of what's called a metoidioplasty, uh, which is a... Um, which is basically literally uh, the Latin derivative is becoming male. And, uh, and in fact, we take, we take testosterone enlarged uh, vulvar tissues and we can create a uh, quite realistic uh, and functional uh, neophallus. Uh, it is smaller than the adult male in most cases, but, uh, but uh, there is some overlap within the lower limits of um, uh, what, what could be expected. Uh, by the way, this is meant for mature audiences. If you're sensitive about this topic, uh, please, uh, you know, be careful about that. We're going to discuss some very explicit surgical sexual techniques, uh, so please be advised. Can you explain how you convert uh, male genitalia into uh, female genitalia? Yes, this is a very well-known technique that uh, introduced in our practice more than 50 years. So we usually use uh, tissue from the male genitalia and create all attributes of female genitalia, like labias, uh, uh, clitoris, uh, it's very sensitive, uh, then uh, neovagina. Uh, there are many, te there are many uh, techniques how to do this, and we have now three groups of these techniques. One is to use just genital skin to create a neovagina, in the last couple of years, we started to do something that is very well known in uh, cis uh, uh, females who born without vagina, and we started to use peritoneal uh, segments. To, uh, this is a part of the abdominal wall to create a new neovagina. And finally, in a case that we don't have enough material, not, not enough skin after radical circumcision, or in a cases after um, failed primary surgery, we use uh, some segments of the bowels. So. Different techniques uh, with just one goal to give uh, uh, simil uh, similar genitalia like in cis uh, women. I see. Uh, Dr. Bowers, uh, in, in the media, there's always discussion about top surgery. Can you explain what top surgery means to the, uh, to the audience? Uh, well, there's transmasculine top surgery, which would be uh, the, the uh, removal of uh, breast tissue. Uh, with uh, usually with nipple preservation. So uh, that nipple is replaced as a free graft, but it depends on the type of technique that's used. Uh, sometimes there's a minimal scar technique, uh, almost like, uh, uh, like liposuction, where much of the breast tissue can be removed that way. Uh, but a lot of these depend on what type of breasts a person has. Uh, for for trans-feminine, uh, top surgery that would consist of usually a breast augmentation uh, in, in a standard uh, in standard fashion. Right. Now these patients are, are treated with hormones, right? And and you treat with various hormones and and puberty blockers as well. Can you explain what you do? Um, well, most of what I do is is medical transitioning. Uh, and so depending upon the age of the patient, 
uh, and their involvement of their family um, and what the patient is interested in, that determines what combination of hormones one can use to um, induce a um, puberty that, that the patient desires. Uh, so for somebody who's transitioning towards a feminine body, we use estrogen uh, to um, build breast tissue to change body shape uh, to a more hourglass shape. Uh, for those who are on the transmasculine spectrum, we use testosterone to um, create uh, some facial and body hair, to create um, uh, a dropped vo voice, a dropped vocal pitch, uh, and to also stop the menstrual period. For people who are much younger, we often use puberty blockers um, to stop the current uh, puberty progression. Uh, and that often gives people time uh, and their families time to sort out how they want to proceed over the next few years. Um, so it really is important to remember that there's no one way that this is done. This is always done, at least uh, in adolescence, in context of what the patient is seeking and often involves, especially if they're minors, it has to involve their parents as well. Right. So here's a question for all three of you. What's the youngest age where you'll give patients either puberty blockers or a variety of hormones that, that you uh, mentioned? Well, I would say the youngest age um, is uh, in, you know, in, in concordance with the guidelines, which would say once somebody has started their pubertal sequence. And so that will depend upon the age. So that could um, be 10, that could 12, be 10, maybe eight even, maybe even eight. Um, but that's not very common. But once they've started their pubertal sequence, that's when you block um, puberty with a medication that basically stops the signal from the brain down to the gonads. And you basically um, use that medicine to stop puberty. And that medicine has been around for a very long time. It's been used for other conditions like precocious puberty, um, very successfully and very powerful, but has actually very minimal side effects and is really sort of a pause button on the puberty. You stop those medicines and those effects um, go, um, go away and puberty progresses. Um, what your next question is, is when do you start cross-gender hormones? Uh, and that is a definite conversation with the patient, the family, um, maybe um, your mental health colleagues, uh, and the doctor. And so there's no absolute um, recommendation. Uh, WPATH, which Dr. Bowers is uh, the head of currently, um, has guidelines on the use of cross-gender hormones. Uh, and so people will do cross-gender hormones as young as uh, 14, sometimes even younger, depending upon the individual scenario. All right. What's the youngest uh, patient that you'll operate on, Dr. Georgievich? Uh, the youngest patient is a patient, uh, the 18-year-old, you know. We mm -hmm. had a couple of candidates who who were very agreed to, to start with a surgical transition and uh, we waited until the uh, 18th birthday and then continued as a gift to these patients uh, with a, a surgical transition. But in, uh, in all of these cases, uh, we had uh, good letters of recommendation from our colleagues, uh, psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, and uh, endocrinologists who, who confirmed that uh, we can do this without any... Uh, possibility for maybe some mistake because don't forget uh, we have a uh, as as our colleague told we have a, a, a reversible transition that is using of uh, hormones or, or uh, prepubertal blockers but if you are going to do a surgery it is a final option and later is really very very difficult to change something and to correct some mistakes right dr Barris, how about you what what's the youngest age that you operate on well, it's a shame that we're identifying age as a criteria because really what it should be is a combination of uh, physical and social maturity. Dr. Bowers is, is absolutely right. In the, yeah. in the perfect world, we would use a combination of emotional maturity, uh, physical maturity, and things like that. Um, the difficulty is that that's... But it's not done commonly. It's not uh, done commonly. There's, there's been a lot of blowback about 
uh, about uh, any sort of treatment and a lot of misconception uh, and misinformation that surgeries are being performed in adolescence, which is simply not the standards of care and it's not the truth. Uh, so we so so is eighteen your your cutoff, uh, and uh, so uh, so that's really what we're looking for because uh, ha undergoing surgery, uh, obviously there's a lot at stake in a young person. We want to get it right. We don't like people uh, regretting their decision, which is not common anyway, uh, and and not common in this population. But nonetheless, we want to be perfect. Uh, no surgery is ever perfect, but we try to come as close as possible. And so that's why we like to see both physical and uh, men mental maturity. Do you ever operate on someone under 18 without parental consent? No, we always involve parents. You always do. Okay. And, and we don't we don't operate under under 18 uh, anymore. We have done a handful of those cases in the past. Uh, they've been well received and and very uh, appreciated by patients, but uh, but but the standard is still age eighteen. All right, which is you know most would say that's a fairly arbitrary number because there certainly are people who are quite mature by the age of seventeen even uh, that would be capable of making that decision. But unfortunately, uh, with the uh, with the inflammatory uh, backlash from some who would like to get rid of transgender persons altogether, uh, the the uh, the the idea of of proposing this at any other age besides eighteen uh, is just unthinkable at this time. Do all your? I want to ask all of you. Do all your patients get a psychiatry consultation before they? take the medications and or have the surgery? No, um, I would say that all of my patients have involvement with mental health specialists. So if somebody is um, a psychologist or even an experienced um, LCSW who's got the experience to make these evaluations around gender, gender dysphoria and things like that, that's sufficient. Um, there certainly are psychiatrists who are not trained in this area, and I would not take their um, recommendations over someone who's got a lot of experience. So it does not have to be a psychiatrist per se, right. but I think all of us involve um, our mental health colleagues um, in the decision process, again, with the patient, with their families, um, before any um, action is taken for minors. Right. So, Dr. Georgievich. Yeah. The, the important corollary, if I can add, uh, sure. sorry about that, jump in, but the important corollary to that is that um, this is not to suggest that this is a psychological issue. Uh, most people now really feel that this is some sort of, you know, it's probably a biological uh, hardwiring of the individual. And, but what we need the mental health support for is to, is to sort through uh, confounding issues, um, uh, uh, you know, performance in school, uh, psychosocial adjustment, and many of the other stressors that affect people at any age, uh, but especially in the, the teenage population where uh, it can be really difficult, uh, yeah, even growing out without any diagnoses, uh, let alone uh, gender dysphoria. So. Uh, we want to make sure that everything else is is treated or under treatment or and uh, and stable uh, before um, or or at least uh, in conjunction with ongoing treatment for the gender issues themselves. What about you, Doctor Dorjevic? Do you get a psychiatry I consultation? Yes, I, I agree with, with with my colleagues completely, and. Uh, uh, it is a very important to have a professional who works with the transgender population. This professional can be a psychologist, psychiatrist, mental health professional or something like that, but he has to be professional. He has to guarantee that uh, this person is ready to go uh, through the surgical transition that is not easy, especially if you're going to create male genitalia, sometimes in a couple of surgical procedures and um, steps. So very, very important is to have a good created letters of recommendation and uh, opinions 
what we can expect after surgery. And also one very important thing is to continue to work, either mental health professional or a psychologist or social workers, to continue to work with our candidates after surgery, to explain what's happened and then, and then to prevent some uh, unsatisfactory outcomes from, my, uh, from uh, our candidates. Right. So, Dr. Bowers, what percentage of patients that you operate on later ask for reversal of the surgery? It's mentioned that it's very difficult to do that, complicated surgery, but what percentage uh, want to change their mind later? I mean, almost zero. Uh, I mean, I can think of three patients in the thousands I've operated on. My predecessor, Stanley Biber, was in the Guinness Book of World Records for having done the most surgeries ever. And I went past that in April. So we've seen a lot of patients and uh, neither Dr. Biber's patients nor my own, uh, aside from just a handful of people. Statistically, it might be as high as 1%, but it's really not much above that. And generally, the reasons for someone stopping their treatment or uh, you know, it isn't seen so much as, as, as wanting surgical reversal, but even just stopping hormones is, a, is, a, um, is something that is considered, uh, and even that is remarkably rare. So uh, this idea that people are somebody, somehow going to miss their old gender, you know, they've grown up that way. You know, once they make that change and they're socially living as who they, who they feel more comfortable being, um, it's rare that they go back. What about you, Dr. Georgievic? What percentage of your patients want a reversal at some point? This is a very interesting question, but I, I don't know which percent of my candidates. Why? Because I don't know what's happened in the future with my candidates who had a surgery with me. But I will tell you something about our personal experience and our team, Belgrade team in Serbia. We published the first article almost seven, eight years ago with the first seven candidates who showed interest for reversal surgery who came from abroad, from elsewhere. And uh, we finished these surgeries. Now we have a collection of more than 50 cases. It is very rare. I agree with Marcy that is very rare. And then, but we have to open our eyes to prevent this because one mistake for this person is 100% unsatisfactory result. And this is like a, like, like a drama, you know. So uh, you can follow also, uh, in the last couple of years, you can follow also a huge discussion in the United Kingdom about this, about prepubertal blockers, about uh, wishes of the young population, eight-year, 10-year-old mm -hmm. uh, teenagers who showed interest to be transgender because it is a popular maybe today. So we have to be very careful on this. And there is a solution, thanks to God, thanks to our experience, that we can reverse and do something similar. But my recommendation is to be very careful for all of the surgeons who are working today, to be very careful when uh, we accept a candidate for uh, this type of surgery. So Dr. Bowers mentioned it's, it's less than 1%, but you've been doing this for many years or decades. Uh, is there any data on, on the reversal if, if you're doing all these cases? Thanks to God, we, we were the center of former Yugoslavia that was, um, uh, that was a country with more than 25 million people, and we still cover all of the transgender population in, in this uh, area. And we performed uh, 1,000, I think, 200 uh, transgender cases in the last 30 years. Nobody showed uh, uh, regret. But uh, I'm not sure that some of them maybe leave and then uh, try no, to... Obviously, the ones you know about. You, you don't yes. know if they go back to another country. They may not yes. follow up with you. But of the ones that you followed, either in New York or in Serbia, what, what's the percentage of reversal? No, according to my work, it is very, very, very rare. Low. I told you we, we have now uh, 52 cases that we did a reversal in the last 10 years, you know. So right. it is almost almost nothing if we compare this with the number of procedures that we did. Right. Uh, Dr. Siever, you mentioned earlier that these medications, the, the blockers, mm -hmm. the puberty blockers and the hormones don't seem to have side effects. There's some literature that indicates they may have side effects such as osteoporosis and, and other no, things. No, no, I, I, no. All medicines, as you know, have, have side, side effects. effects. Right, right. Um, they, for the 
power of the puberty blockers, they have very few side effects, but there are limits to them. You cannot use a puberty blocker for more than two, maybe three years because there is concern about uh, bone health and the acquisition of calcium into bones. And that if somebody is on a puberty blocker for too long without adding in uh, hormones, that they are set up for later in life of having osteoporosis and things like that. There's some question about mental health um, uh, development, but it's very subtle, um, and I've not seen any of that. Um, many of our kids often struggle because of societal pressures from depression and anxiety, but I've not seen any study that said that puberty blockers add to that. And in fact, there are studies looking at quality of life that when you talk about puberty blockers and then moving on to, if that's appropriate for that individual, moving on to cross-gender hormones, that most of those people feel like their quality of life has just improved incredibly. And so even the people who, um, in my area, so that's more medical, even those people who have said, I don't want to do this anymore, um, usually it is not because they feel like they are trans, that they are not transgender. It is not, they do not reverse how they see themselves, but usually it's from other reasons. I've, I'm tired of taking needles. I'm living in a place that it's just so hard to do this. I don't want to do this right now. None of them have ever said, I no longer feel transgender. So that reversal is very, very rare. Some of the original data was very flawed around that. And I think the more modern studies clearly demonstrate that, you know, especially as you get older, 16 and above, the percentage of people who reverse are extremely low, less than 1%. There's also seems to be some debate about the incidence of depression in people who go on to, uh, you know, uh, convert or become transgender as compared to if they didn't. There's also mm -hmm. some literature recently about increased suicide rate in, in patients who've had sure. transgender medications and, and transgender surgery. What, what's the data on that? Well, I think, you know, you have to remember that many of these individuals are under a tremendous amount of stress from society. And in some sense, it's that, it's that, you know, um, Chinese water torture, a single drop on the head every 10 seconds. When somebody misgenders you every single time you go into a store or on a bus and they say the wrong gender, the wrong pronouns, that has a little bit of effect on your mental health. And so we do see with these kids, especially in uh, families where the parents are rejecting of this, we do see higher rates of anxiety, depression, self-harm, suicide attempts, suicide completions. So we know that there's a lot of things going on. But when you subtract out those confounding variables, the mental health stuff of our kids is really quite remarkable. And especially if you start them on the hormones that they are seeking, um, many of their mental health uh, issues improve. Now, these are not psychiatrically active medicines. And so I always tell my patients, do not stop therapy. If you are on an antidepressant, stay on that. You should only stop that when you and your psychiatrist feel that you've gotten better or you're no longer needing it. But just because you've started one of, one of my medicines does that mean you should stop your antidepressants or things like that. So it's really important to, to make a distinction. We are very clear, the data is very clear, that gender dysphoria per se is not the problem. It's the society at which our kids live in and the constant pressure that they are under that causes the anxiety, the depression, and all that stuff. All right. uh, Dr. Bowers, are you aware of any of your patients uh, becoming suicidal or committing suicide? And Dr. I mean, you're, I mean, you seem to be passing along a false narrative. In this well, I'm, I'm just asking because not, you have the experience. Not, uh, um, suicide is a is a um, uh, obviously a great concern uh, mental health among particularly right. among adolescents and there's no question that um, that uh, as mentioned uh, being transgender and dealing with a society that has a an inclination and in 
many cases, an acceleration of anti-transgender uh, attitudes, uh, that that puts pressure on, a, on an individual. Uh, but if you, again, if you, if you take out the confounding, you take out all of that, you just, you simply don't see people, uh, you see, you see people's uh, psychosocial lives improve. And uh, this has been looked at over 50 years. So this isn't something that's new. This is known as Swedish study of 50 years of evidence has shown that not only are people's lives improved and that regret has declined, but it's done, it's gone down over the decades. So, uh, so that's just simply a false narrative that's put up by gender skeptics. And I'd really like to stamp that out once and for all. all right. uh, there's no question that gender affirming treatment is beneficial. Uh, and, uh, but it's a, it's a, it is a vulnerable population. And uh, if, it's, if, uh, if, if people are, are treated poorly, uh, you know, it, it puts pressure on that individual and their support. Right. And don't forget that when you look at rates of regret of common surgical procedures, transgender or gender affirming procedures are much lower than similar procedures done in cisgendered individuals. So we don't always, we almost never talk about um, the uh, cisgendered woman who has an augmentation and then regrets it later. Um, we seem to focus a lot on the transgender woman who has something and then regrets it. But in fact, if you look at those studies, um, and one came out oh, six months ago or so, I'd have to go find it. Um, the regret rate for these gender-affirming surgeries is remarkably low compared to similar surgeries done on cisgendered individuals. Incredibly but, low. Yeah. Just Google, just Google uh, famous actresses who, who have regret about breast augmentation. It's a rate far higher than we ever see for our trans populations. I mean, just start there. Look at regret after, after uh, uh, knee replacement, and you'll find regret rates far higher than what we see. And yet people focus on trans surgeries. And uh, and try to try to inflate that as a narrative. It's just simply um, simply not right. Thank you for having well, me. I must excuse myself. I'm sure. so sorry. No problem. Thanks very much uh, for coming today. We really appreciate uh, your taking sure. your time. Thank you, uh, Dr. Georgievic. What what's your feeling about this issue? About the, the... no, I, I don't have I don't have exact data about uh, suicides in in a group of. Uh, uh, transgenders who had any contact with me, not just surgical, but any contact and then. But it, uh, this is a very good issue that uh, that we discussed already, uh, that uh, nobody is not sure is this regret comes from bad surgical uh, outcome or it is uh, some psychological psychiatric problem or some comorbidity. So we have to be very, very focused on the main problem and then to try to help to, to society, to help to transgender population, who really needs uh, some uh, additional support after after surgery and then and i would like to 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 make a short discussion that i am not uh, agree completely with marcy marcy is not here but uh, she knows my my discussions also and with with the colleague why because uh, if you are going to discuss about regret after uh, uh, breast augmentation we cannot compare this with the removal of the uterus, with the removal of the testicles, that's with the removal of the penis, it is not comparable. That's correct. So uh, I agree that it's very rare, thanks to good, uh, thanks to good uh, treatment and then. But what is the problem? Problem is that if you compare a situation 10 years ago, here in the United States, we had just five centers who performed transgender surgery. Now we have more than 200. So, with the growth of the number of the candidates, with the growth of the number of the transgender services, then possibility to make uh, some bad result and then is higher. This is a statistic. So now you can compare what's happened, for example, in India, in China, 1.4 zillion people, mil, uh, billion people, and uh, nobody knows what's happened because they're coming for surgery and then disappear because country is too huge and that. So this is one of the of the main issues that we have to take in our mind, not just to treat our patient who is with us now in this room, 
not to open our eyes and to try to help to society. It is international thing. And we have to work together to improve a life over the world because nobody knows how many, how much is a real uh, incidence of transgender persons who are born today, you know. Right. I'm glad you brought up that having a breast surgery change or reversal is, is uh, relatively minor comparing to having genital surgery, which is major, major surgery. So I would agree with you and, and disagree with Dr. Bowers on that, even though she's not here no, Marcy, anymore. Marcy, 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 Marcy is on the same side like me, but right. maybe she didn't have enough time to explain this, but right. it is a really very rare. Her conclusion um, was that it is a very rare, but I right. would like to repeat. If you have yeah. one unsatisfied who is regret, it is a, a huge problem for him. And we, as a part of society, have to work together to help him or her. Right. So for this reason, it's much better to prevent this mistake, if it is possible, of course. Right. I also don't think the knee surgery analogy is a great one because most people have knee surgery because they're in severe pain or, or disabled. But moving on, what's the recovery like from these surgeries, both males and females? I would assume it's it's complicated and a long yes, recovery. Now, now, now the, the, the techniques that we developed in the last uh, 15, 20 years are now very safe and thanks to good um, technology and improvements we have today a very safe surgeries now for example male to female is around four hours we are going to use the robots to create something from abdomen to, to make a better neovagina or in opposite if you are going to create a male genitalias this technique that marcy uh, told about metoidioplasty is a very nice technique today we finish this technique in less than two hours and create completely new male genitalia from female genitalia thanks to our knowledge in embryology because we we starting together in the first couple weeks of our uh, you know of, of our uh, embryology with the same genitalia you know and then in one moment someone is going to be male another one to be female so Base is the same, and we are going to use this and to create and to correct these genitalia according to the patient wish uh, with the very nice techniques. Right. I'm an ophthalmologist, so I, I do different types of surgeries. I can understand how you convert a, a male into a female, but how do you create a penis surgically from female genitalia? Today, today we have uh, uh, techniques that uh, we uh, group in, uh, in a phalloplasty surgery. This is a surgery that we are going to use extra genital tissue to create a neophallus. Uh, the gold standard is to use um, uh, uh, part of the skin with the subcutaneous tissue for, for arm. Uh, there are other techniques, for example, anterior uh, tight, uh, phalloplasty or abdominal parts, abdominal skin with the fatty tissue. So you take tissues from other parts of the yes. body and transplant yes. and then them. Create, so we, there's we no are, rejection issues or problems with that. No rejection because we use the tissue from our candidate, you know. Right. And we use a very popular and very uh, good uh, microvascular techniques to uh, to give uh, uh, almost similar genitalia. But it is not never like in a, in a cis males. In a male to female, it's much better. I, I can tell you some uh, some some uh, thing. Uh, uh, one of one of the candidates who who passed the surgery and who got a female genitalis visiting gynecologist who never discovered after many visits never discovered that this person was a was a male before transition you know so this is today the really very very nice with the perfect functional aesthetical result but in opposite we have to work more to give a, a better similarity between genitalia right. and better function voiding and erection Right. So you mentioned the surgery is very safe. What is the complication rate, serious complication rate? And do you get sued a lot for malpractice? Yes, of course. We can discuss about complication rate just according to our evidence-based medicine. So we can compare results just in the published papers, in the published results. But today we have plenty of centers who never publish their results. So I can discuss about results right. of my team. We, we have a really very low complication rate between 5 and 10%. That is a 
perfect today. It was 30-35% 20 years ago. So I cannot, I cannot discuss about another rate, but good developed centers who works more than 10 years and who perform minimum two to three transgender surgeries per week are a good centers with a low rate of complication. What about the malpractice issue? Do you get sued a lot for malpractice from people who are dissatisfied with the results? Absolutely, absolutely. But we have to be very careful and then to uh, give our comments about uh, bad result, about malpractice. Don't forget, good result is not a result if me as a surgeon conclude, oh, I did this perfect. Good result is if I hear from my candidate that he or she is satisfied with the new genitalis. This is good result for me. But right. everybody, we surgeons are a little bit different, you know, and we would like to put our, um, uh, us to be at the first position always and then, but we have to be more realistic and to accept satisfaction from our patients, from our candidates, and then to, to uh, discuss our surgical results and our, uh, and our uh, success rate. Right. One of the uh, criticisms, criticisms that are around from people who are against uh, transgender surgery and, and uh, me medicine mm -hmm. uh, is that both hospitals and doctors are making a huge amount of money from this. Um, what, what's your comments on that? Well, I can't really speak about the surgical programs and the finances of the surgical programs. The uh, medical programs simply do not, they're not money makers for any hospital that I know of. Um, like most programs in medicine, um, it's just they don't, uh, they do not make a, a lot of money. These medicines, for the most part, with the exception of the puberty blockers, are um, not that expensive. So the drug companies are not making a killing on providing testosterone or estrogen. Um, there are some minor exceptions to that depending upon the formulation that you use, but overall those are medicines that are very quite cheap. Um, the puberty blockers are very expensive um, and you know we could get into a discussion about why that is and, um, and the cost of medicines in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I don't believe that anyone is making a ton of money off of um, of these medicines, and I know of no no medical program that is making money off of this. I see. What about the surgical component? The the same criticism exists that surgeons charge huge amounts of money for this. The insurance companies are paying it. The hospitals are making a lot of money. Yeah, is it, that a true criticism it, it, or not? It depends. It depends on countries. If you compare countries over the world, if you compare, for example, good developed countries, there is a difference. For example. I think the the most expensive is to have this type of surgery in the United States now, but thanks to God and thanks to our uh, thanks uh, to situation, our plans are covered by insurance. For example, I had a plenty of the patients from the United States to came to Belgrade to Serbia to have a surgery, and then when we saw that uh, it's possible to do in the United States and to be covered by insurance, I joined Mount Sinai immediately and uh, started to work here to help to this. Uh, people here not to travel and then because surgery in my country is not expensive. It's not expensive comparing with good developed countries, but it is expensive. Not expensive if we discuss about uh, the level of the so money. That what does it cost in Serbia? In for... Serbia, in Serbia is between 10 and uh, 20,000 US dollars for everything. What Depends about... on type of procedure and then, you know. What about here in the I don't the exactly. You have, you have to check maybe in a hospitals and then, but I don't know exactly. But according to reports of my uh, clients, it is five, six times more than, 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 for example, in my country. The same is, for example, so in United Kingdom. So it's like Kingdom. $100,000, $120,000? I and, think so. And in, do most insurance companies now cover the surgery? I think so. I think and so. do they cover the, the medical treatment for these patients? Uh, with some work, most uh, commercial insurances and many um, of the Medicaid uh, and I assume Medicare programs will cover um, the medicines. It's often um, a process where you have to write letters and say why this medicine is needed. Um, but uh, again, it's uh, many of these medicines, if you go on to some of these 
programs like GoodRx or things like that, you can get really quite excellent deals on the medications per se. Um, That's the estrogens and testosterone, which have correct. been around a long time. But what about the puberty blockers? Those are still very expensive. What's very expensive? What? Um, I have seen uh, insurance companies um, say that they cost about $1,500 a pop. I've seen people, uh, that's per dose. And how um, often do they get those? And then I've also seen where people have, um, in, um, pharmacies have sold them retail for close to $5,000. Wow. So the, the price to the consumer can vary uh, a lot. Um, the, those medicines, depending upon the formulation, can either be uh, once a month or up to every six months. And there is an implant that uh, can last up to two, three years. Um, but the implant is uh, expensive because you need to have a surgeon place it uh, and then remove it. Uh, and so there's some uh, additional cost there. I see. Now, you operate both in, in Serbia and here. How's it different? What's, what's the difference between doing your surgeries in Serbia and doing them in the United States? It is the same. For me, it's the same. I have same. A fantastic conditions here. I, I develop my center in Belgrade, and we cover also all aspects uh, in the Belgrade. It's very safe with the, with the modern technology. And then, so for example, we have uh, every year more than 30 persons, 30 doctors who are coming to learn to so, to observe our surgeries, to work with us and to develop, uh, uh, to develop experience. Also, I started to work uh, in United Kingdom because it was for me unbelievable data that um, today under the NHS in the United Kingdom, we have today more than 8,000 candidates who are waiting for surgery. And the waiting, the waiting time is between five and 10 years. So it was a reason that, that I, uh, that I uh, accepted uh, invitation to join the center in Trails at Westminster Hospital in London and to develop a new team and teams who will start it to work and then to help with this very huge population. Of course, I asked my my uh, partners here at Mount Sinai for license and then due to some, mm -hmm. you know, uh, conflict of interest. And then and they agreed with me and gave me support to join uh, London Hospital and to try to, to help on this part also. Wouldn't it be less expensive for somebody from USA to, to go to Serbia? Because the airfare would, wouldn't be that expensive and it sounds like it's it's much less expensive to do the surgery yeah. there and you're the same surgeon regardless of absolutely. where you are with the same good absolutely. facilities. So why don't people do that? I, absolutely, but the, 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 when I started to work here in the United States, but I would like to tell you, I, I did the first transgender surgery with my credentials in 2009 in Detroit Receiving Hospital. That was a, a, a beginning, you know, uh, the chief of, the, of, of this uh, hospital is now one of the leading transgender surgeons in, uh, in uh, Texas, you know. His name is Richard Santucci, very well-known reconstructive urologist. So uh, between 2009 and uh, 2016, I had a plenty of the candidates from the United States who didn't have... A, possibility to do this surgery here and to pay at the same level than in, in, in my country. Another the, uh, the issue is that I try to do surgery in one stage. So I never split a surgery in three, four, five stages because it is uh, uh, cheaper for my clients. Uh, there is only one rec uh, recovery period and then. So I think this is one of the reasons that our techniques and our um, uh, procedures that we promoted through the world in the last 30 years are the reason that we have a plenty of candidates from all parts of the world and also almost all transgender surgeons who are going to visit us and to um, change experience with us. All right. Do you think the increased uh, volume of surgery and interest in this has always been around but it's been suppressed somehow and people didn't talk about it because seems to be much more popular in the last few years. Previously, you'd hear occasional cases of it. Why is that? I think a lot of it has to do with awareness and knowledge. Until people started to really talk about gender as distinct from a person's body, you know, gender identity as being different than their body, 
and being different than sexual orientation, being different than behavior. Until you have that language and that ability to think about it, you don't really, um, you'd have to be pretty uh, savvy um, to understand that there's a difference. And I think now that um, we do talk about the differences between gender identity and bodies and sexual orientation, you have people who understand that, oh, the reason I like boys is not because I'm a gay man, it's because I'm a woman and I'm a heterosexual woman, I like men. And so people can really start to think about uh, this. And that has then also led to people being aware that it's not all about the binary, um, that you know, just like hair color is on a continuum, height is on a continuum, all these sorts of things, gender identity, sexual orientation can be on a continuum. And so we're starting to see people who do not identify as male or female, but something in between or something not on that spectrum, a non-binary person. Um, and that's sort of some of the cutting edge stuff that we're talking about right now. Right. Now, again, we're often dealing, I'm often dealing with teenagers and their thoughts are evolving and growing. And so somebody who may identify as non-binary now may continue that non-binary identity uh, into adulthood, or they may, with further growth and development of their brain, may settle into a more binary uh, role. But I think what we're seeing, to answer your question, is that there's just more discussion about it and more exploration, and so people can understand that, oh, that might be why I feel this way. What about the uh, critics of this who claim that the reason teenagers are becoming more interested in this is that it's, it's kind of a fad through TikTok and other social media that they're being influenced by this and, and uh, later they'll kind of change their mind or be sorry? What, what do you think about this, this fad explanation? I don't think this is a fad. People may desire to play with gender expression and that's been around forever um we right. you know all known this since we were all in high school that yeah. there were people who just like to play with gender expression some people may be taking that a little bit farther and saying it's not just expression it's gender identity but then this is why we have processes in place so that a 15-year-old can't just walk into a clinic and say, I want hormones and walk out with it. We involve uh, their parents. We involve them. We involve the doctors. We involve the mental health experts. So it's, it's a process. And the goal of that is not to limit people, but to really make sure that their thinking is clear and that it is not a fad or something they're doing just to piss their parents off or they're doing it because their friend is this way. Um, that's that's the, the importance of the evaluation process. So, What's the quickest you've ever recommended a patient for surgery from the time they first appear to your office and, and desire having a, a sex change operation? You said it's a process. Mm -hmm. how, how long is that process? Well, I never recommend anyone for surgery. That is a decision that they can make on their own, um, that they will decide if that is for them. I will help them explore that. Someone may say, I want to have a penis. And I will say, well, this is what I know about it. This is the, the surgeons. This is the recovery. These are the potential complications. So I never push someone to have a surgery. They're coming to me and saying, help me make this decision. Um, the so in that sense there is no minimal time because many of them have made that decision way before they've met me i see now how fast one can get a surgery depends upon their circumstances um, i think the best programs have waiting lists up to a year um, there are private surgeons who will do it much faster than that but that's not available to everybody and again you want to go to a center that has a lot of experience. And so when people say, well, I could go to this private doctor who will do it in two months yeah. versus Mount Sinai or one of the major centers in New York, but there's a waiting list, I usually point them to the center with the most experience. I see. 
Dr. Georgievic, I know you're involved in some research of uh, doing surgery simultaneously on, on male and female at the same time. So you're, you're taking the genitalia from male, putting in a female, and then uh, doing the opposite female genitalia in a male. So, so this, is, this, is, this is my main research now. It was uh, my vision and my dream 10, 15 years ago because I calculated uh, with uh, too many uh, male and female organs that we are going to remove and put in the garbage. I, I concluded that it will be maybe useful to use these very healthy organs because today transgender population average is approximately 22, 23 years. So we have a completely healthy genital organs. And... Who is going to give us a license to cut this and, and to put, you know, to be not you, you know, to not to use for someone who really needs for this? So it was a basic of my research, and now we are in a final step. Uh, we are working uh, in uh, my forensic institute, my University of Belgrade, and we now try to develop a techniques how to use uh, genitalia from the from the person who who is going to one. Uh, gender and then to, tr to to transplant to another person who are looking for this and as, as a result of this uh, I will tell you something that is very well known now in the, in the literature in the world we did a, uh, we did a three uh, genital organ transplantations first one was a uterus transplant in a cis female uh, in a monozygotic twins it was the 11th in the uh, in the world at this moment it was a 2017. Then in 2019, we did the second testicular transplant. First one was uh, in, in uh, Texas in the uh, late uh, uh, 70s. And uh, last year, we did the uh, ovarian transplant. And from all of these three transplantations, we had a delivery that is very good result. So right. final approach will be to transplant the penis. This is my main goal, goal of my career. And uh, I hope that this future started yesterday. Right. Now, you're a urologist by training. Do you work with other surgeons, like vascular surgeons, to connect the blood vessels and neurosurgeons to connect the nerve supply from the donor to the host? How do you do that? Today, we have today we have a possibility to create a teams and then to involve different specialties. But I started, I told you, 30 years ago, and I started to work this, and I was alone, and I, I developed my skills to do microvascular, to do nerve junction, and then. So today, I have all of these skills to do myself. But for this project, I have a very nice teams of transplant surgeons who are going to work with me and who will help to do this revolutionary uh, project. Now, you're transplanting tissue from one person to another, so there's going to be a rejection of that tissue by the host, the person who receives the organ. How do you uh, deal we, with that? This, 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 is, this is a bioethical issue. Why? Because we cannot uh, recommend, uh, for example, a genital organ transplantation um, in a person and then to send this person under the very strong immunosuppressive therapy because this therapy has a side effects that will be, you know, very, very problematic. So we are here as a, as a surgeons to develop a techniques. I did a three transplantations, uterus, ovary, and testicle in monozygotic twins. There was no necessary to be under immunosuppression. Right, they have the I same... Was, I was happy, but now... But they have the same <laughs> DNA, so there's no problem same, of rejection. Same, same genetic material. But how, but how can you transplant a penis from one person to another and they don't reject it? I, ho I hope that I will find, for example, couple from the same family who are very... Uh, who, are, who are very uh, compatible, or also we have uh, plenty of the persons who had some transplantation before, like a kidney transplantation or a liver transplantation, something like this, and who are still on immunosuppressive therapy. If he, if he finds someone who is a transgender, he will be a fantastic candidate to be a recipient. But for donors, it is very simple because we have a plenty of, of, of possible donors for this. Very interesting uh, in the future. Um, how do you, Dr. Siever, how do you uh, deal with parents who are against this uh, completely? Because that's obviously in the news a lot, parents who are against their 
child transitioning? How, how do you uh, deal with that? How do you deal with the patient and the parents? Well, I mean, I think it's, it's really important to remember that um, in this country, in our society, you know, the parents really do have the final say about the care that their children receive. So if I do meet a family that um, the child is very interested in transitioning, or I meet a family where one parent would like to and is supportive and the other one would not like to and is not supportive, um, if there is a question about that, uh, we cannot move forward. Um, I can talk to the patient, I can talk to their parents, I can erase any misconceptions. Um, there may be things that they've heard that are not true, you know, trying to clear up any misconceptions. Um, but fundamentally, if a parent says, I do not want this for my child, then my hands are tied. And the most I can offer the child and the family is just ongoing support. Um, so that, and I will be very honest with some of these families, your child is 17 and a half. In six months, they will be considered an adult and you will lose that control. I always would like even an older teenager to be supported by their family. I would never want to start somebody on a transition and then have them be kicked out of their home. So we have to make sure our mental health colleagues are present and in place so that we have plans on what to do if somebody is kicked out of their home or rejected by their family. But it's, it's a really tough thing when um, either one or both parents says, no, I do not want any of this. I have to respect that. There's just simply no way uh, under any existing um, laws right now that allows me to do something like that to a minor without parental permission. Right. That's in uh, New York State. I understand there's some states now that are trying to change the law so that minors can do this without parental consent. Uh, maybe. I don't know the specifics. Um, many states, most states, um, have laws allowing minors to have um, uh, access uh, to certain medical um, conditions. So evaluation for pregnancy, um, pregnancy-related care, evaluation and treatment of STDs uh, is a common thing that minors can self-consent for. Um, many states allow for minors to self-consent for evaluation and treatment of mental health issues as well. So there are some things that minors can consent for, but gender care is not really one of them. Uh, and I don't know of a single state that has passed a law saying specifically with regard to gender care, gender affirming care, um, that, um, that a minor can self-consent. And this isn't to say that I don't support the kid. I don't support the child and say, you know, hey, you know, you're an adolescent, so you still need medical care. You need, you know, vaccines in your physicals and you need support um, by mental health professionals because your parents and you don't see eye to eye. And so there's going to be some conflict. And so let's get you involved in some counseling um, and and explore some of these issues. So. Uh, I am very supportive of them. I'm just not able to like provide hormones. And of course, I'm not a surgeon, so I don't do surgery. But um, uh, yeah, that's those are tough scenarios. Right. Do you see conflicts like that? For example, a 19-year-old who wants to have this done and the parents are totally against it? What, what, what do you do in that situation? It was, it, it was, a, it was a very, uh, very often situation in the past, you know. Thanks to better education and also uh, thanks to uh, media that opened the, the society about the uh, possible problems with transgender persons who are looking for help, we have today much, much better situation. But I, I found a couple of cases uh, the, the, uh, that uh, developed the, the worst problems, and in uh, all of these cases, parents were uh, doctors. Never accepted that, the, the, you know, daughter or son is going to be something different, you know. So I worked, I worked like, like a, a mental health professional also, tried to explain this and then, 
So we finished this very successfully, but you can expect this always. You can expect always. And also, I would like to point out that in in the last couple of years, we have a very low rate of the candidates who are coming without parents, young candidates. Before that, this this population left the home, started to to mm-hmm. to live alone, tried to organize money for surgery to do some crime or something like this, without parents. But now it is almost normal uh, and usual to have a parents to stay with you when you are going to discuss about your surgical transition. That I'm very happy. Why do you think doctor parents are against this? I don't know. This is a personal feeling, you know. So I'm a doctor also. Though, so right. I, 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 I train myself to accept my, my uh, children to be the persons as, as, they, as they feel, you know. So I'm here to support. Not possible to change a decision, you know. So just to be supportive. All right. Well, this has uh, been a very fascinating, educational, and informative uh, discussion. We've discussed all, all the aspects of this uh, transgender medicine and surgery. I appreciate very much uh, you both coming in today, and Dr. Bowers, who had to leave early. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. All Thank right. You.